Trading Nut, episode 50. When markets are trending very, very strongly, it is incumbent upon me, I'm obligated to, it's a form of philosophical obligation, I feel, to make as much from that as possible, which means I will pyramid continually and very, very aggressively until a trade is over. The market's going to do something. Your job is not to fight it. The market never, ever runs away. It's always there. That personal diary of trading will make you a much better trader than... I could be right about the direction, but wrong about the trade. Don't focus on the monetary side. Trying to make too much money on a trade is what I have seen killed every trader. Your losses offer you some of the greatest insight you can find into your mistakes. Relax. Learn the process. Candlestick pattern trading is a freaking trap. Don't be in a rush to become a millionaire. Let the market tell you what the market wants to tell you. This podcast is not financial, trading, or investing advice of any kind. What's up, traders? Welcome to another installment of the Trading Nut Podcast. I'm your host, Cam Hawkins, and today we've got Chris Tate on the show. Now, if the name sounds familiar, I've actually had his business partner on, Louise Bedford. She begged and pleaded with me to get him on, and I know why now, because it's a damn good interview. Really, really good. Not just trading lessons, but life lessons as well. So we've got that coming up in a second. Now, before we get into that, I want you to I want to tell you about something that I found really fascinating, quite interesting, and I want you to help me out at the end as well. So listen up, folks. Here it is. So earlier this week, in fact, it was yesterday, uh, one of you listeners out there by the name of Al, Al, you know who you are, sent me an email saying, hey, guess what? Did you know that one of your past guests has a famous actress as a daughter? And not only that... Not only that, there's a there's a massive sort of cliffhanger here, and some of you guys will know what this is and who this is. Um, the cliffhanger, I'll tell you in a second. So the guy's name was Larry Williams. I didn't interview him on the Trading Nut podcast. I interviewed him on the 52 Traders podcast, and there's something that's really been annoying me ever since that interview. And it was a comment made by somebody that uh, where he said, hey, mate, you basically... You completely screwed up the interview. You did not find out what this guy's all about. You did not um, ask enough good questions. Long and the short of it was, I didn't research the guy. I just went in and did the interview and hoped for the best. Um, what I didn't realize was this guy is a huge name in trading. He's like he's like he's run for Senate in the U.S. He's run for Senate in the U.S. and um, and a couple of other things as well. Uh, but. The story, and I only found this out yesterday, and the, st- the story that uh, that this guy Al told me was that his daughter is this famous actress, actress named Michelle Williams. So she's been in Dawson's Creek, she's been in, uh, she was on Brokeback Mountain, you, you must remember who she is. Um, what else has she been on? Oh, she's been on tons of stuff, tons and tons and tons of stuff, massively famous Hollywood actress. Anyway... What you may not know, which is the big sort of like, <laughs> literally the big mic drop, she won, not even placed in, she won the World Cup Championship of Trading back in 1997 when I worked it out, she was about 17 years old. Now, having her father as Larry Williams means that, and he's won it as well, um, means that you've got a better chance of winning it I suppose and I don't know how much he helped her but look hey she won she won it and I suspect he was helping her along the way to get there the interesting thing is she didn't just win it she actually is still the second has the second best return ever in that competition and like there's you know traders for the this since 1997 traders have come and gone you know it's it's incredible so this actress it's in her wikipedia page so if you want to go and check it out have a look at have a look at her wikipedia page have a look at larry williams wikipedia page it's it's truly quite unbelievable now the 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 thing that i found even more weird and i want you guys to tell me what you think this means i was watching the news later that day and this article came up about the Emmys. I paused it. It reminded me, oh, I should tell my wife about this Michelle Williams story. Told my wife about the story. She was amazed, like, what had gone on. I was telling her how gutted I was that I didn't research the guy. I could have asked him about it. I could have asked him about his daughter and, you know, how she came second overall and that came first in her first attempt at the uh, Futures Trading Competition. 
didn't do any of that stuff and that with the big lesson for me was I really need to do a lot more research on my yes before I get them in front of you guys uh, but that's for me to do now what I want <laughs> what I want your advice on and I want you to head over to the trading Night YouTube channel leave a comment underneath this interview and tell me what you think so I hit play to watch the rest of the news article she only goes and wins the like uh, some lifetime achievement award and is doing this massive speech on the news just, so it just happens to be that day i've i've got no idea no idea what the significance is but if you've got any idea please hit me up on the trading nut youtube channel leave me a comment um, really interested to hear your thoughts on this if you've got any more information um, i remember larry sort of saying Hey, look, you tried three times, you finally got through. I'm now going to give you your chance to interview me. And at the time, I just didn't realize how much of a big deal it was. So, guys, sorry about screwing that interview up. But I'll tell you what, we've got a great interview for you right around the corner here now with Chris Tate. Enjoy. All right, folks, we've got Chris Tate here on the show from tradinggame.com.au. Now, look, if you think that that sounds slightly familiar, then it should you should do because it, it, he is partnered with Louise Bedford from episode, uh, let me just find that for you here, episode 23 of the Trading Nut podcast. So if you want the complete picture here, then I'd head over there, uh, tradingnut.com afterwards, and check out Louise's podcast as well, which was fantastic, and there's a little video that we did with that one as well. So, Chris, welcome to the show. It's great to have you on finally, and it must be months after I've, I've had Louise on. It is. Thanks, Cam. Yeah, so episode 23, you'll be sort of up in the f- nearing on the 50 mark. Uh, so we've almost had 25 weeks in between, half a year in between, in fact. I can probably work that out. Um, so, look... <laughs> Could you hit a solid half century? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so we're going we're going to uh, dive into your trading story today. And I know Louise mentioned to me that it was worthwhile getting you on the show because uh, I think believe you'd penned a couple of books or a book or so. Um, is that right? Oh, way back in the dim dark days when people used to read and buy books. Ah, oh, right. When did I write my first book? I think I wrote my first book in about nineteen eighty nine on options trading when options trading actually also used to be a thing before the arrival of CFD sort of cruelled that market for everybody. And I've written, I think, four since then, but I haven't picked up a pen to write a book in nigh on 20 years now. Oh, right, okay. My information's slightly uh, out, of, out of date. Um, so, look, let's start off by getting your your story in terms of how you got into this into trading way back when, uh, and uh, it should be quite a journey all the way through to where you are now. I I didn't start off with this end in mind. Uh, My sort of aim was a long way distant from where I find myself. Uh, I sometimes proudly trumpet that I have neither a degree in finance, economics or accounting, Uh, My basic degree is in immunology. Uh, I was a researcher and my gig was the human immune system, which I'd always had a fascination for. But a few things sort of coalesced at once. Whilst at university, in the throes of academia, I noticed a few things about academia. One was politics were a pain in the ass. Two, the money was appalling and... Three, dealing with students drove me mental. But more importantly, we were in the early days of the 1980s bull market. And I had a lot of friends who had gone through the traditional route of, you know, doing economics or finance and were working in banking and stockbroking and the like. And we used to sit around and I used to listen to them and what they were doing. And so I started investing on my own account and made all the classic blunders that everybody makes because nobody makes a new mistake. Everybody makes the same mistake over and over again. And I thought, well, this is costing me a fair bit of money. Who would actually know about trading? And in one of those tremendous leaps of logic that proved to be completely erroneous, I thought stockbrokers would. 
So I, I wangled my way into a job at a stockbroking firm uh, based purely on the, I think, uh, sort of skill I had for using a calculator that didn't have an equals button, which they actually thought was a form of black magic. I was quickly, very, very quickly disavowed of the belief that stockbrokers knew what they were talking about because when I arrived on the desk, the guy sitting in front of me had been a carpet salesman until three weeks before, and the guy sitting beside me had sold shoes until six weeks before. So he was the most experienced person on the desk. And I persisted with stockbroking for several years, and it's where I originally cut my teeth on derivatives because coming from a quantitative background there, reasonably easy to understand, and stayed there for a few years, but was fortunate enough to be able to drift out of the industry and look towards retirement a very long time ago. But uh, retirement is a profoundly middle-class concept and very, very, very boring. And about 20-odd years ago, I ran into Louise at a function and we gradually began to do bits and pieces together, which eventually coalesced into the trading game, which dragged me out of retirement and isolation and sort of sees me sitting here talking to you. Well, great, great story. It's interesting you say that. Like, it, I don't know if you want to elaborate on that retirement as a middle-class concept. I think what happens is that my interpretation of the way people view their lives or view the trajectory of their lives is they view it in stages and these are very carefully set according to a series of societal norms. It's, I still think the old traditional notion of go to school, get an education of some sort or trade, get married, have children, work, retire, die is still pretty much the norm. And I see even friends of mine living their lives as if it is a dress for rehearsal for all the wonderful things they're going to do in retirement, which they never really end up doing anyway, because if they were going to do them, they would have done them when they were younger anyway. And so I think people get caught in this trajectory towards something they think they should undertake. And unfortunately, the workforce is structured this way, but... If, if you think back to the historical context of it, people retired at 65 and died at 67. That's now no longer the norm. People retire at 65 and live well into their 80s. So the entire precepts, both sort of sociological and financial, that underpin the notion of retirement have completely disappeared. And my view is, why would you want to sit around doing nothing other than gardening and playing bowls. Uh, that would drive me insane, and I can't see how anyone derives any pleasure from that whatsoever. I can, I can understand some people get to the end of their working life and think, thank God that's over. Uh, now I can do other things. But my observation has been that most people don't get around to doing the other things. And so sort of my view is, one, do the things whilst you can, and B, never really retire. I, I don't see the point in stopping learning, doing things, experiencing new things, uh, all the things you should be doing at all stages of your life. I don't think, I don't see why they should change uh, when you hit this mandatory date that has been arbitrarily defined uh, through some historical artefact. It's interesting. Uh, I mean, how you mentioned that it's a you know a societal sort of norm, and I suppose it's one of those ones that people find it hard to break because it's literally just it's, it's everywhere and everyone's doing it, and it's like that sort of herd mentality of how do I? I'm with the herd. I'm now actually having to consciously make a decision to break away from it and do something different, uh, which doesn't fit with what everyone else's thinking is i mean how did you just to give some insight into into how you got to that point i mean have you got any any tips or advice or anything that you've you can leave us with i think i think the point you make about it being 
part of the herd is an important point. One of the, I suppose, advantages and disadvantages of trading is that it is gloriously isolating. So in many ways, you're a herd of one. Now, many people struggle with this, and I can understand why I never have. So you, you're free to make your own rules, and you're free to pick and choose whatever you do. And in, in saying that, it's important to actually have things you want to say and do. There's, there's no point having freedom and then squandering it by sitting on the couch watching the Home Shopping Channel looking for, you know, the next Abblast 2000 to buy. You're, you're actually better off doing things. But it does take work to break away from the herd. And one of the ways I have done it is that as I've gotten older, the people I train with get younger. I don't train with people my own age. Uh, a, because there aren't many of us who continue to work out the way I do it as they've gotten older. And B, there is a certain energy that you get from being surrounded by people who are younger than you. They just drag you along and they remind you that once upon a time you were 23 and stupid as well. Okay, so so uh, I suppose is the uh, is the solution to try and source out younger people to bring you back into that? Is that one of the well, sort of ways to do it? I think, I think so because one of the scariest things I find is that uh, when I catch up with friends now who I've known since my late teens, early twenties, is that they actually look and act like their parents did when I met them. And I have this little mental model that says, don't ever be like that. And I think it's, whilst they say sort of age is only a number, in part that's true, but it's more, I I find I look around and I look at the people I don't want to be. Uh, For example, I was, uh, as is my want after, working out most mornings, I head down to our local little cafe, which sits opposite a park, and I sit there outside and have breakfast and just, you know, stare at the trees. And there's always a bunch of fat old blokes in Lycra who roll their bikes down the hill, stop, and then eat for three hours. They seem to have missed the point that the eating for three hours has completely done away with whatever benefit they got from rolling their bike down the hill. And for the love of God, please don't wear a lycra that early in the morning when you look like that. They present you the mental model of what not to look like and how not to behave. Now, granted, at least they're out doing something, but there are ways of doing things and there's ways of acting, being, pushing, striving uh, and just continuing to do those things. It's like someone posed me the question the other day, would you continue to work out if you could no longer set personal records in the gym? And the answer was, well, shit, yes. I haven't set a PR in the gym for decades now, other than in new exercises I try. You just keep going. Uh, That's just the notion of things. You, You pick where you want to be and you aim at it, as opposed to sort of letting inertia drag you downhill to a point of complete collapse and entropy. Cool. Well, look, let's um, let's jump back for a second because we're getting quite deep on some uh, some 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 uh, specific sort of I suppose lifestyle choices and and um, I mean it is interesting though because I do think it relates to to people as traders. Now you talked about way back in the beginning how you'd make the same mistakes as everyone else. I mean, what what were those mistakes and how did you get out of out from that sort of habit of creating those mistakes? I think in part. In, in terms of mistakes, I made all the classic ones that everybody makes. And it, it's things like uh, not hitting stops, becoming wedded to a position, being caught up in the narrative that might surround a position. The story might sound really, really good, 
but the market doesn't agree with it. And it's only the market's opinion that counts. In part, I think my advantage came from my academic training in that I'm somewhat rigorous at looking at data and somewhat rigorous at looking at mistakes that I make. And it, that can drift into being hypercritical, but it does serve a role. Once you begin to document what you're doing and you can see a pattern, let, let, let's say, for example, that you don't hit your stops. If you sit down and annotate every position you take and then note what has happened, sooner or later it will become obvious to you what you are doing wrong. However, whether you want to do anything about that is another matter. So it's a two-stage process and it doesn't proceed lockstep. A lot of people recognise their mistakes, but then because we act with a tremendous degree of ego defensiveness, they move to shift blame for that to somebody else. Uh, the old one we used to hear, uh, particularly on the Futures Desk, was, well, uh, the locals are just running my stops. No, your stops are A in the wrong spot, and B, you're just not honouring them. So once you start to build data, you can start to make sense of what you're doing because it's, it's the old management ethos of what can be measured can be managed. And it was only when I started to collect data and look at what I was doing that the problem became apparent. And like all of us, the problem is the driver. If, if you have a basic breakout system that buys in uptrends, it's really hard in the right market conditions not to make money. Like, it's, it's really, really difficult. You've got to be profoundly stupid to screw it up that badly. If you've got that system but you're not honouring your stops when it goes wrong, then it really doesn't matter what you do. And so it's a, a matter of simply sitting down, what am I doing wrong? And thinking about what you're doing wrong. And it's always the operator. It's always the individual. I know we like to push blame out to everybody else, particularly in finance, but it is always the driver who's gotten it wrong. Interesting. Um, now, diving into the career that you had at the stockbroker, I mean, what was the... What were the sort of were there any funny stories you had that came out of that, and any insights that you could leave the guys with that might help them in terms of understanding how the industry works? The, the industry is intriguing, and it has changed over the years, and I think it's changed for the better. If you want an example of how finance used to work, uh, get out a copy of The Wolf of Wall Street and watch that because that used to be the way the industry worked. However, having said that, we are talking about an industry that had to be kicking, dragging and screaming towards the notion of acting in a client's best interest. How that could ever be a problem for anyone, I don't know. But look, stockbroking was an intriguing endeavour. Uh, we used to have rules that, for example, our operators weren't allowed near the seat screen after 12 o'clock on a uh, Friday afternoon. Uh, because they come back pissed. And so you can't let someone who's uh, well, well under the weather process orders for you. Uh, that's simply disastrous, as many a broking firm learnt. And so it was, particularly during the 80s, a very wild and wacky uh, place to be. It, it, was cer it certainly lived up to all the hype and imaginings that people had of the excesses of the 1980s, which is when I became to be involved in the market. And you meet all sorts of weird and wonderful people because we were highly involved at the time of when Alan Bond was around, when Holmes Court was around, when John Elliott was around. So it was actually full of these big, larger-than-life figures who seemed to very much have disappeared from the corporate landscape. Uh, the corporate landscape now seems to consist of millennial vegans who want us all to treat one another nicely and be kind, as opposed to being these rampaging corporate raiders who are simply outrageous and much, much larger than life. 
And I think the industry is a little bit duller because of it. Uh, I understand times change, things change, society changes, but society can change to be much more boring, which is, I think, what's happened in finance. And so do you think if anyone was like out there going, okay, I'm going to get, I'm going to become, I'm going to master the markets, uh, I'm going to get a job at, at a brokerage firm, do you think that they'd be better off or worse off? They'd be much worse off. Think of it this way. Think of how brokers are remunerated. They're remunerated on turnover, not success. So they're a volume business. It's not like, say, for example, starting a fund where you say, look, Here's my track record. I'm now going to manage money. And for managing that money, I will take a fee, just a small maintenance fee to cover the administrative costs of running the fund. But at the same time, what I will do is take a percentage of profits. And we'll have a series of high watermarks, which I have to beat. Things like a benchmark, such as the return from the all ordinaries. And once I have beaten that, I'll take a percentage of profits. That's a very different model to stockbroking, which simply says, I'll take a clip of every trade that comes through. One's based upon performance, one's based upon volume. And this is going to sound harsh, but the people who know the least about trading are people in the finance industry. Uh, if you want to make money, don't give it to them. And this is, this is true of all stratas of the finance industry, everything from your lowly corner financial planner through to giant superannuation funds. The, the mere fact that most superannuation funds, I won't say most, I'll say all over time, underperform the all ordinaries but charge vast fees for doing so, you should actually tell people something about the quality of the individuals running them and that, what their knowledge is. If if I was to have me sit down and talk to me 30-odd years ago, I would say, right, this is what you want to do. Here's a series of stages. Here's a series of steps. Here's a series of books to read. And it would be things like moving almost instantly to a quantitative model. Just let price tell you what to do. Because price is the final arbiter of, of all things we do. It is simply the market's message to you. And where I used to find great difficulty in when I was in the industry is that people want to argue with price. They would say, yes, but my story is correct. Well, it's clearly not because price is going in the opposite direction to the one that you would want, as indicated by your position. So I'd instantly move to a quantitative model. I would spend much, much, much more time working on myself, working out my motivations, why I did things, why I thought the way I did, why my money scripts were the way they were, where, where I, had I inherited those from? Because one of the things we see people hold, that we see hold people back, is simply the way they think about money. And it's the old traditional things that everybody's heard, that money is evil, that people who had money have cheated or they've stolen it or they've just been given it. And all these things have an impact upon the individual and they have an often disastrous impact upon traders. So if you get method and psychology right, you're much better off being out of the industry because all the industry will do is pollute the way you think. You'll come away with all sorts of nonsense ideas uh, based around idiot stories like narrative. The story I have for the stock is really good. Well, that's nice, but how are you going to convince the market your story is correct? How are you going to tell the perhaps millions of other participants that your idea is the one right idea? Well, the logical answer is you can't. And you'll come away with nonsense ideas such, well, it's never a loss until you sell. Well, there are tens of thousands of delisted stocks that would actually tell you a different story because you can't now sell them, but it's still a loss you would get idiot ideas such as dollar cost averaging. That is the notion that if you've bought a stock at 10 and it goes down to 8, you just buy more and you just keep buying more. Well, that works really, really, really well unless you're buying Babcock and Brown 
which you would have started buying at $30 and continue buying at $0.30, cents and now it's gone. And so the industry does everything it can almost to convince people or teach them how to trade badly and how to trade very, very poorly. So my advice to anyone who wanted to go into the industry would be to a degree predicated on their background. If they'd done finance or economics and they wanted to get involved uh, as a trader, I would say don't bother and do your own thing. If you're a quant, and by that I mean a very high-powered quant whose PhD is in mathematics, physics, computer science, then there may be a role for you within a quantitative hedge fund where you can pick up skills, but they're very, very hard positions to get. And on balance, everybody is actually better off by themselves. Interesting. Interesting. Look, let's um, actually, before we move on, so a couple of things on that. One is I, I actually stopped investing in mutual funds, funds or managed funds, as we call them over here. Oh, it must have been probably, oh, it would have been a good 13 years ago, maybe, um, after... For that reason, for that reason. And secondly, narrative bias was actually discussed by one of my past guests who, funnily enough, I interviewed him this morning, so only an hour ago. Um, so I remember it quite quite clearly, but you guys listening, if you jump back and find uh, David Keller's interview, you'll hear us talk about narrative bias, which you talk about, uh, and and possibly a way to overcome that as well, which is which is quite useful. So um, let's dive straight into your trading these days, Chris. So um, do you want to start with uh, giving us insight into your trading style? I'm very simplistic. Uh, my life is built around simplicity, it's simply because I believe that simple models work really well, and simple models work really well under stress, so that you can actually stress test them quite easily. So if I was to characterise the way I trade, it's quite simple. I buy breakouts in existing uptrends or sell breakouts in existing downtrends. So it's a very, very simple model. And it's based around, uh, when I was asked to write The Art of Trading, I told the publisher I only really knew three things about trading. And that was, if it's going up, you buy it. If it's going down, you sell it. And you don't bet the farm. And they said, well, that's not going to fill 200 odd pages. And I said, well, I'll pad a little bit, won't I? And trading reduces to that. But the unfortunate thing is, it, it seems we're primed to do exactly the opposite. We sell things that are going up, buy things that are going down, and we have concentrational lottery bets where we simply put everything on red and hope for the best. And so I'm very, very simple. If it breaks out to the upside, in, a, in an uptrend, I'm a buyer. And my view has always been that there is no money made on entry. Yet this is where people spend probably 90% of their time. My view is that money is made on managing the trade and knowing when to run away. Uh, because once all the money is gone, you can't play. Markets are a little bit ruthless that way. So entry for me is really quite simple. Management's a different issue. Uh, management and exits are, I won't say more complex, but they're more psychologically taxing, I think, for all traders. Ex exits in particular. Exits cause us to struggle dramatically. And look, I understand the reasons why. It's, you know, we act to defend our ego. Therefore, if we exit a position early, we admit we've made a mistake. We want to push off the notion of loss realisation uh, there's some debate as to whether loss aversion is as real as people think, but ego defensiveness certainly is. Interesting. Does make a lot of sense. What about the uh, time frame? Do you what time frames do you focus on? I actually have three, and they to a degree interlock and overlap. I have a four hourly system, which is based on four hour data, which makes far fewer trades than people would think. This is backed up by a daily system that trades the same data set, which is a very limited number of commodities and indices. And overlaying that is a weekly equity system that trades equities using weekly data. So there is some overlap between the first two. Uh, third one is the true wealth creation mechanism. 
uh, and unless you're using extraordinary leverage, nobody gets rich trading instruments short term. Uh, it just doesn't happen. But it does act as the, a powerful cash flow generator. And it, do, it does generate diversification across time and instrument base for me. And uh, what instruments were you referring to before? In terms of the short-term systems, so I'll look at the European indices, uh, the S&P 500, NASDAQ, series of energies such as Brent crude, heating oil uh, and the like. I dropped, uh, a long time ago I dropped soft commodities because they seem to have undergone a disruption that means they don't trend like they used to. They just don't seem to act in the way that I was familiar with from the 80s and early 90s. And so they've been dropped. And that's largely it. I've reintroduced slowly uh, a small number of currency pairs, which I'm just experimenting with again at present. I've, I, to be honest, I've not, over the decades, found currency much of a fertile hunting ground. And so I've just slowly reintroduced them, more in some ways, particularly the Aussie-US, as a form of massive, uh, natural or passive hedge. So that insulates me a little bit against currency moves for some of the commodities I trade, which are US dollar denominated. Okay, and um, and what about your winning percentage alongside your risk-to-reward ratio? How does that look? In terms of, well, for the short-term system, the uh, win ratio is actually really quite poor. It's, it's about 33%. But the system itself, because of the way it is structured in terms of uh, the leverage that's applied at certain times, compensates for that. So it has a strong overall positive expectancy, but a poor win rate which I've found to be traditional. Sometimes the win rate would drift up into the low 40s. At present, the system's in drawdown, so it's dropped to about 31%, 32%. There are times, and I, my observation is, over the years has been, this seems to be a thing with traders, is that UN system drop out of sync with the market. Uh, the trades just, the trends just aren't there. You keep taking them, but you keep managing the risk on the way down so that the drawdown is to some degree managed. With equities, the winning percentage is higher uh, simply because we, we're, we have been in a market where equities have been trending, which has been a wonderful change here in Australia where for years after the GFC we went nowhere. So it drifts up above uh, 50% market times. And it's in terms of its expectancy, because it pyramids very, very aggressively in its winning periods, the expectancy is quite high. Expectancy can be as high as three to one, four to one. Okay. Okay, right. So, And when you said leverage up, what do you mean by that? Does that mean like sort of adding to what the positions for the winners or? I'm a very, I'm, I take the view that, and this is predicated on my, my very simple view that the market will tell me everything I need to know. I just have to listen. And it will go wrong when I get in the way and when I don't listen. And so when markets are trending very, very strongly, it is incumbent upon me, I'm obligated to, it's a form of philosophical obligation, I feel, to make as much from that as possible, which means I will pyramid continually and very, very aggressively until a trade is over. What this actually means is that when I look at the distribution of returns for the year, I will have a series of break-even trades, series of trades that have been very, very small losses because my losses never get away from me, and I'll have a collection of outlier trades. All the profitability comes from the outlier trades, which is why it's necessary to take a very, very systematic approach to trading and to take all the signals that are given to you. You can't mix and match. Uh, for example, we have a trading plan template on our website that guides people through the notion of 
you know, what should be in the trading system that they have. And one of the things we note when we review them and look at them is that the thing that hamstrings people is that they simply don't go after their winning trades. They, they generate this natural reluctance that, well, I've made X, perhaps I should be satisfied with that. And so we come back to the psychological basis of money scripts. Well, no, the market is offering you an opportunity to make money. So it's really incumbent upon you to take it because my view of markets is very, very diff different from someone who's perhaps come from a classical finance background. If I was to say to them, why do markets exist? They would say, well, they're a means of raising capital for business enterprises. They provide a secondary market for price discovery and further capital raising. And I would go, bullshit, the market exists for me to buy a Porsche. That's why it exists. And so my attitude is that the market exists to enable me to be wealthy. It therefore enables everyone else to be wealthy. You just have to accept that that is its primary role, which floods back into this notion that if you have a trading system, it must ha take advantage of all uh, running positions. You, you can't, for example, well, no, I won't say can't, that's wrong. I view it as inefficient to say, well, the position's gone up 25%, I'll drop a third of the capital out. Or the position's gone up 50% and I'll drop another third out. And so you have this notion of an ever-decreasing size in a running position, which I think is categorically wrong, but it's still practiced by many. My view is, if, is that if the position's going up, I want to buy more and more and more and more and more. And I want to continue doing that until it stops. And because I have money management in place, I have stops in place, I know when and how to do this, my chances of blowing myself up are, are look, I won't say it's zero, but it's a trivial non-zero number. Uh, and th this is one of the, I think, the great impediments that people have is that they won't accept what the market will give them, which is somewhat disappointing to see. That's interesting. I haven't heard that on the show, and I'm so glad I asked the question because it really gives some massive insight into not just psychology, but also an approach that people might want to think about. Uh, now, what about your typical trading day? How does that play out? My, my trading day, intriguingly, because I was thinking about this this morning, is done and dusted by 8 a.m. In, in fact, most of the day is over by about 5.30 a.m., I'm one of these profoundly annoying people who gets up really early because I just can't seem not to. And so I'll get up, PC comes on, quick glance at the overnight markets whilst waiting for the kettle to boil because that's the most important part of the morning. Uh, and then it's sit down, see if any of the stops have been hit, see whether any contingent orders have been hit, begin the walkthrough of the small uh, basket, of, I think it's about 15 or 20, Bits and pieces I look at over the four-hour system, and that takes no time at all because the system is, is so rigid. Uh, then that part of the day is done. I'll then return to the desk at about 8, which is when the daily close for the instruments I trade occurs. Same process again, and then we're done. Uh, the weekend takes a little bit longer because of the size of the data sets I analyse. But it's, I think people get caught in this notion that if you're a trader or investor, you need to be glued to the screen all the time. And I would say that that's very much a false economy and as a reflection more of the desire to be entertained than of actually having a system. I can understand it with people who trade, uh, say, tick data, and I say good luck to them because their profound motivation is entertainment, not to get rich, because you can't. Uh, and no doubt that'll upset a lot of people, but it's just the way it is. And so my, my days are largely my own, which is why we come back to that point of the notion of retirement. You need to have things to do, because if you don't have things to do, guess what happens to your trading system? You begin to muck around with it to provide it with something for you to do. And once you do that, you're really not that far off uh, a catastrophic loss. 
makes so much sense. Guys, something to rewind, I think, and listen to. Uh, Chris, what about cryptocurrencies? It doesn't sound like you trade them. Uh, have you invested in them? Bitcoin, where do you think it will go? My, my, my view of, I'm, I'm intrigued. I, uh, one of the things I suggest people become, and very few people do this anymore, is to become a student of the history of markets. And one of the books they should read is Mania's Crashes and Panics by Kindleberger. And it looks at a series of sort of manic markets from, you know, the Dutch tulip boom through to the South Sea bubble. And two years ago, I did a very interesting exercise that is still on my blog, where I looked at the price from the South Sea bubble in the 1720s and overlaid it over the top of Bitcoin. Guess what? They look the same. Really? Surprise, surprise. Why? Because they're manic behaviour about something that doesn't exist. One of the things that is intriguing about Bitcoin is uh, I understand the technology of blockchain behind it and speak to anybody about blockchain and they will go, yeah, it doesn't do the things people say it does. It's not frictionless. It's very slow. The power generation requirements for it are appalling. And so Bitcoin to me represents a market where the behaviours that were outlawed 100 years ago on stock markets are the norm. If you read uh, Reminiscences of a Stock Operator, which is a thinly veiled sort of biography of Jesse Livermore, the behaviours they were getting away with in, say, 1915, 1916, with front-running illegal orders, theft of client accounts, is exactly what happens in Bitcoin. And I, I view it from sort of the sidelines as a somewhat arrogant observer in that it's always intriguing to watch people sort of swept up in mania. It's intriguing to watch common sense go out the window. Louise and I were sitting in a cafe two years ago and there was a young girl saying to her friend, you've got to buy Bitcoin and trade it because it's going to at least a million dollars. And I thought, yeah, no, it's not. Not not in any way, shape or form is it going to a million dollars, darling. And so I'm intrigued by Bitcoin because I'm intrigued by manic behaviour. I I know that in 100 years' time, uh, sort of my counterpart several generations down the line will look at it and go, well... It was a South Sea bubble, and in the early part of the 21st century, they had this stupid thing called Bitcoin, where they all went mental. Uh, and so I'm, I'm a fan as an observer, not a fan of it as a vehicle, uh, simply because of all the difficulties of it. Now, that may be different if you trade it via CFDs and you're allowing a counterparty to take risk or make up a mythical market for you. But it doesn't. I don't think it changes the underlying my underlying opinion of, you know, the market as it exists. And it's also any market where there is excessive volatility as a function of, you know, well, I won't say criminal behaviour, but I'll say behaviour that we outlawed a long time ago. Any edge you have in your system will disappear. And so, if you if you can't engage a market with a positive edge, then it's really just suicidal. Mm. Mm, interesting, interesting stuff. Uh, what do you think, uh, I suppose, made you different from the average mum or dad trader out there? Did you have any special traits or uh, did you take any special actions? I think there's, there's probably one or two things from my background. Uh, one is I paid my way, way through university being a bouncer. Now, that might seem strange. You might think, well, how the hell do you get from bouncing to trading? One of the things I learned in bouncing was a simple maxim I used to have. All I need to do is to be 1% calmer than the people around me, and I have an edge. The same is true in markets. If you are 1% calmer than everyone around you, then you have an edge. But by the same token, having been a bouncer led me into, because I've been a martial artist all my life, ever since I was 11, led me into the notion of examining how the psychology of confrontation worked. And strangely enough, the psychology of confrontation is the psychology of stress. 
it's this interplay between cognitive anxiety and somatic anxiety. Cognitive anxiety is when you uh, intellectually recognise a problem, something that causes you worry. Somatic anxiety is the physical response. It's the feeling sick in the stomach. It's the sweating. It's, you know, the slow declining cognitive ability that you have. You might think, well, how is this relevant to trading? Think of it this way. Imagine you've got a position and that position is slipping against you. Cognitively, you've realised what's occurring and it's generating that sort of an intellectual anxiety. This then feeds into the physical symptoms, this sort of uh, response you get from your endocrine system, whereby you begin to feel nervous, you begin to feel upset, sweaty. Now imagine your position slips further and you have no stop, so you're just letting it run like most people do, and you're engaging in wealth destruction. All of a sudden, cognitively, you start to build a mental model that says, well, if it collapses, I'll lose my house. I won't be able to send the kids to school. We won't go on holiday. This heightens the physiological response of anxiety, which in turn does an awful thing and feeds back into the cognitive response. So we get, and people often talk about fight or flight. I'm not, I'm not certain flight exists in markets. Fight certainly does. But there is a third dimension to this, and that is freeze. And it's the interplay between these two that causes people to freeze. One of the things I learned in bouncing is the worst thing you can do is freeze. Do something. Trading is the same. The worst thing you can do is freeze. So I, from quite a young age, without actually realising it, had learnt to control and deal with my own anxiety when presented with stressful situations. And markets do present you with stressful situations. There's no doubt about it. Uh, you could have a situation where you go to bed one night and some lunatic has flown into a building and the world is completely different. That's a stressful situation when markets open. So these things can and do occur. And it's that, I think the thing that separates uh, good traders from the ordinary is not only introspection, but it's the ability to manage your own emotions and to step back from them and have a mantra like, be 1% calmer than everyone around you. That's a great little tip there, guys, a great little tip. Now, uh, what about fundamental analysis with your system that you, systems that you trade versus technical? What, what percentage is fundamental-based? Zero. That's a really easy question, zero. Good. Um, we can move into the detail then. So around, I suppose you talked about picking trends, you enter on the breakout. I mean, how do you go about establishing a trend? Because I'm guessing that's a big part of what, what you do. One of the things about trend analysis, trend analysis is it's really the simplest part of trading. Um, the, the tool I use, or I recommend to people, is quite simple. Put the chart up on the screen, on your PC, walk to the back of the room, sit down, turn around, have a look. It will immediately become apparent to you as to what the trend is. It's only when we start to become involved in the decision-making process that that simplicity disappears. Even when I get people to do things like put, let, let's, you know, let's pick a number, 60-period moving average, and it doesn't matter which one. If you put that over price, price will either be generally above or below it if it's above it it's in an uptrend if it's below it it's in a downtrend it really doesn't get that much more complicated than that and the problem we run into is that people desperately want to make it more complicated than that and it doesn't need to be that way uh, my system is based around simply buying breakouts above tools that describe trend and the fewer tools on the screen, the better. Because one, once you get into the notion of just letting the market talk to you, let, let it say what it's got to say, you shut up. Because one of the great problems people have in trading is they will not shut up and let the market talk to them because the market's the only voice that matters. Yours is irrelevant. The market will go in its direction with or without you. Nothing you can say or do will alter that in any way, shape or form. Once you get to that point, once you understand how that works, then picking the trend is really quite easy. 
the hard part then is actually letting the trade do its thing and it is just leaving it alone. Uh, there is, there's, there's no problem that a trader cannot make worse by interfering with it. Uh, people have this wonderful capacity to make situations much worse than they need to be. And the same is true of traders. So trend following is, is the, the giveaway is in the name. And this is the intriguing thing. When I talk to people about stop losses, I say, think about the name. And they go, well, it's a stop loss. Yes, but what does the name mean? Oh, I'm stopping my losses. There you go. We've learned that. Now let's move on and learn something else. The, the, the basic precepts of trading, despite what people want to tell you or you know, perhaps make up, are really, really, really simple. And that they are incredibly simple. You buy things that are going up, you sell things that are going down, and you don't bet the farm. And if you can sort of generate a mechanism that suits you and suits the way you see the world, but is based upon those sort of foundations, then you've got to work really, really, really hard to screw it up. I'll tell you what, I'll tell you, I think there's some great nuggets already dropped in the show. I could almost charge for this episode. It's, it's, uh, you guys, probably you, should. We'll go out to lunch. Yeah. If you're, uh, if you, if you've not picked anything up, I'll be very surprised. Um, we're just about to head into the quick fire round, Chris. So, um, get ready for this. You, you might be touching on some of the stuff you've talked to already. Maybe just zip, zip through those answers, but here we go. Let's do it. So the first uh, one is, how long did it take you to go from trading newbie to consistently profitable? Well, probably about in excess of five years. What's your mental approach to trading and do you have any special techniques you can share with us? My approach is one of simple, rigid discipline and routine. Trading, unfortunately, is a mechanistic production line. It's not making it up on the fly. It's not all the stock footage you might have seen of stock exchange or futures trading floors where people are yelling and screaming. It is rigidly, ruthlessly disciplined. We do the same thing in the same way every day. What's your favourite entry setup? Simply break out into an existing trend. If it's come out of congestion and... It breaks out from there, then I'm a really happy camper. What strategies do you use to exit or manage active trades? All of mine are volatility or ATR-based stops. Again, mechanical and ruthless. What's your recommended trading book? For people who are starting, I would actually recommend, and it seems a little bit light on, that they pick up a copy of Market Wizards simply because of the psychology within it. The psychology within it dictates that it takes people time to be successful, that most methods work, but they work because of the person driving them. And once you've got that, you really only need to collect one or two sort of technical analysis-style books. Uh, Louise Bedford, my business partner's Trading Secrets and Charting Secrets are workbooks for people, which are an excellent place to start. Once you've got those, everything else is simply repetition. If there was one thing you recommend any retail trader spend the next month mastering, what would it be, why, and how could they go about mastering it? People are going to hate me for this. If you live near the ocean, get up at five in the morning, go and stand in the cold water for 20 minutes. Why? Because it proves to yourself that you can actually do it. It proves to yourself that you are ruthlessly disciplined enough to control yourself and that's the thing one of the things people spend far few time far in nowhere near enough time working on is themselves that's a great tip great tip uh, what's your preferred broker and trading platform i trade primarily cfds so it's a toss-up between ig markets and cmc uh, to me, the platform is, to, to agree, largely irrelevant. I know people get caught up in, well, the screen looks this colour on this one and the screen looks that colour on that one. I, I don't think it matters. Find something that suits the way you see the world, that fulfils all the functions that you require and need, and stick to it. What's the worst trade you've ever had? 
That's a really, really hard question, actually, because I'm blessed with uh, a form of amnesia for my trades. I, I really struggle to remember even ones that have gone absurdly well. I, they just come and they go clean out of my head. Look, the one I will say is one of the first trades I undertook, and that was Astro Mining. And I bought it at, I think I started buying at about 30 cents and began selling them at $3. And it was one of the worst trades I ever undertook because for a period it convinced me that I was much smarter than I actually was. So it actually taught me all the wrong lessons about the market and about myself. And it took me quite a while to recover from that. Interesting. Uh, last question of the quickfire round. If you could leave our listeners with one piece of advice, what would it be? It would probably be be 1% calmer than everyone around you. And strangely enough, that's advice for being a doorman, a parent, and a trader. Brilliant. Look, Chris, last question of the show. We'd like you to give us the bones of a trading strategy. So entry setup, stop loss, take profit targets, market time frame. Something our listeners can have a play with at home. Okie dokies. Uh, I know what I'll do. I will talk about wealth destruction. Everybody talks about wealth creation, which I'm kind of a fan of, but I'm more of a fan of looking at the notion of wealth destruction simply because there is a ruthless equation in markets. And that equation is that if I lose 10%, making 10% on what I've got left won't get me back to where I started. I need 11.1. If I lose 11.1, I need 15. Lose 15, I need 20. Lose 20, I need 25. This is a curve you can't catch. So it is desperately important that people understand how quickly wealth can be sort of vaporised and how inaction can hasten that process so I, I have a stock favorite I often look at which is the old stock of ABC learning and it's one I use for people to convince them of the fact that the market will tell you everything you need to know if you just listen to it and the old ABC learning you know, had a wonderful run-up in the early part of the century from about 50 cents to $9. And if you look at the chart, if you've got access to delisted stocks, all well and good, uh, can I actually share my screen with you? Well, I'll tell you what, why don't, we, uh, why don't we jump on and share the screen after the show and yeah. we'll do a little YouTube clip that we'll chuck up in the, in the YouTube channel. Sound yeah, good? Because, yeah, because the point of stocks like these is there's an infinite number of opportunities for you to get out. And that, that's the thing. In getting in is easy. Any idiot can buy a stock, but it's actually only professionals who know when to sell and have the discipline to actually sell. And because one of the harsh things about markets is there's no grant for new traders. There's no government incentive to get people into markets like there is with you know, first home buyers. So if your money's gone, your money's gone. Now, I do note that some CFD providers do do the idiotic thing and allow people to open accounts on their credit card, which hopefully ASIC will jump on shortly. But once your money's gone, your money's gone. So in terms of the way I see the world, the way I see the world can be described really quickly. I buy breakouts. So if something moves to, let's say, a new 20-period high in a 60-period moving average, I will always risk... 1.5% of my account, my stop will, my initial stop will be at a significant price slow or generally just three ATR and then the system just sits there and continues to sit there. The weekly system has a transition stop and then I transition the stop out to five ATR because I'm not interested in all that. I know people get caught up in all, my stop went from a dollar to a dollar ten, I'll sell it. I really couldn't give a monkey's bum. My interest is in the trades that once a year go from $1 to $10, and I've pyramided 10 times. And the only way I can do that is to widen the trailing stops. And one of the great mistakes I see people make is they might have perfect entry. They might have perfect placement of their initial stop, 
but they gradually fill it themselves to death because they're so desperate not to give back any open profit. Unfortunately, giving back open profit is part of the name of the game. There's nothing we can do about that. So I, I run a very, very simple world. I can code my system with about four lines of code. I can run my system in Excel, which is, uh, there is a David Harding, a physicist who turned hedge fund manager, runs Winton Capital. He said for the first few decades of running their fund, which is an enormous fund, uh, they ran it in Excel. It is that simple. Well, look, I can't wait to have jump on the screen share and have a look at this. So um, we'll do that in a second. Now, before we wrap up, what's the best way for the traders to get hold of you? Best way for them to get hold of me is to come to tradinggame.com.au. You can register for our free trading plan template, which will walk you through the process of what should be in a trading plan. Uh, you can also keep up with my sometimes somewhat demented and eccentric rantings on my blog. Lovely. Look, a big thank you to Chris for sharing with us today. Everything we've discussed here, along with all the links, are in the show notes. To find them, simply search for Chris in the search box on tradingnut.com. Until next time, I wish all my listeners trading happiness and success. All right, guys, hope you enjoyed that interview with Chris. Now, if you do want to see what we did on the YouTube channel, head over to the Trading Nut YouTube, Trading Nut YouTube channel. There are links in the description. There's links if you're on the phone. It's perfect. There's links on the website. So if you want to head over there, you're going to find the links. Actually, in actual fact, you won't find the links. You'll find the video embedded in the page. Head over there, guys. Great little video we shot where he walks through a price chart and teaches you a whole bunch of stuff. So, guys, follow up to the interview, definitely do that. Secondly, whilst you're there, why don't you tell me what you think about my little Michelle Williams story here? Just, I don't know, it's got to mean something. It's got to mean something other than the fact that I need to research my guests a bit better before I interview them. Um, Oh, should I tell you this? Yeah, why not? I'm going to tell you this other thing. I'm actually starting up another podcast, completely different subject to this. I will let you know what it is at some other point in the future, um, stay tuned. It'll be. I'll tell you what it is. Okay, just stay tuned. It's coming. It's coming. It's coming. For now, head over to tradingnut.com. You can check out the robot offerings I've got there. So I've got the Robot Traders Club where you can get monthly robots into your uh, inbox, and I've also got the uh, Robot Builders Club where you can learn to build trading robots yourself. I teach you how to do that in 21 days. All right, folks. Until next time, have a great trading week, and I'll see you in the markets.